Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. This is our first meaty episode, and we're going to be diving right into the deep end. Our topic today, ISIS. That's an easy one. Totally. Simple, straightforward. Simple, straightforward, not really a lot of complexity, and certainly no animosity, emotions, or issues of national security tied up into it whatsoever. Right. So let's dig right into it. I'm going to start you off with a quote. So... Quote, it is said that if you know your enemies and know yourself, you will not be imperiled in a hundred battles. If you do not know your enemies but do know yourself, you will win one and lose one. If you do not know your enemies nor yourself, you will be imperiled in every single battle. And that quote coming from the famous general philosopher Sun Tzu in The Art of War. Though it sounds a little bit like Donald Rumsfeld with known unknowns, unknown knowns, unknown unknowns. It actually kind of does, and part of me hates making that comparison because it feels unfair to the great philosopher, but oh. too many unknown unknowns, and you run yourself into a international crisis. How do you think we're doing on knowing ourselves or our enemies, Xander? That is a good question, and hopefully we can get into that in a little bit more detail on this episode, don't you think? Yeah, let's do it. So I think this quote can be condensed and has been condensed down through the, uh, the ages into a more simple phrase, which is just, know thy enemy. And as we're talking about ISIS today, we need to kind of ask ourselves, as Eric implied, how well does the United States really understand ISIS? How well does United States citizens understand ISIS? And given our lack of success in the Middle East over the last 15 years or so, and maybe even arguably over the last couple of decades, how well do we really understand ourselves and how does that impact our policy choices as relates to ISIS? Hey, we had a mission accomplished banner like three months after we invaded Iraq. That was good. Yeah. And, you know, printing something on a banner makes it reality. I believe that was called the Bush Doctrine. That is the Bush Doctrine. Yeah. Yeah. So ISIS has a strategy that is informed both by dogma religious dogma, and learnings from other non-Islamic insurgencies that have happened throughout history. Mm. And a lot of evidence points to the fact that ISIS attacks will not really be used as deterrence for Western involvement in Syria, and increasingly Iraq, but really as encouragement to become more involved. It seems kind of counterintuitive until you take the time to better understand the enemy. So in the U.S., we over the last 15 years, throughout this age of the war on terror, we've developed this tendency to lump all forms of seemingly incomprehensible violence into this category of terrorism. The thing is, of course, not all terrorists are created equal. And while it may initially seem really hard to, to, to sort of understand, many, in many cases, this violence is comprehensible. And in fact, we need to actually attempt to comprehend it before we can fight it, even if it doesn't initially make sense to us. We need to try to get inside the heads of our enemies. 
Yeah, and I think that with terrorism, if it's incomprehensible, if it's actually incomprehensible, it's probably crazy people. Because terrorism ultimately is about changing a country's policy through acts of awful violence against the citizenry. And so if it's not clear to you why someone's blowing up civilians, either you need to understand more or they're just actually insane people like in Norway. And in that case, well, in in both of those cases, intentions driving the violence necessarily will lead to different appropriate responses. Yeah, exactly. So what does ISIS want? Well, ultimately, most Islam extremists, their goal is to create the conditions to allow for the resurgence of a true caliphate. And a caliphate is just essentially the Islamic religious traditions version of an empire. And this is a step towards fulfilling a number of prophecies that occur in the Quran and the Hadith that will lead to the end of the world. Which, as we know, is awesome. Right. And again, counterintuitive, but in the minds of many of these people who want to establish a caliphate, the end of the world is actually a positive thing. Now, members of Al-Qaeda, which was the terrorist organization that carried out the attacks on 9-11, bin Laden included, Osama bin Laden was the head of Al-Qaeda, never really anticipated seeing that caliphate in their lifetime. And one distinction that we're going to draw is that the Islamic State, that's not the case. They do intend to see this caliphate in their lifetime. And in fact, that's what they're working to build right now. Yeah, and I think the idea of, well, why would you want the world to end is if you're of a particular religious ilk, your belief about the world is that it's this ugly, awful place full of sin and bad people, and that the end of the world means the end of the world as we know it, and the establishment of the kingdom of heaven on earth, which is going to be great, uh, which is why you would want to bring it about. And, you know, I think the conventional view of ISIS a few years ago before they stormed through Iraq in a blitzkrieg of sorts was that they were the they were just a bunch of jokers. Obama infamously called them the JV squad of Al-Qaeda, which is now kind of an oopsie that in retrospect. JV like junior varsity, right? Yeah, junior varsity. And so it implied two things. One, that they weren't a big deal, anything to be worried about, that they weren't professional. And the other is that they were basically the same as Al-Qaeda and that they had the same intent. And, And both of these are wrong. We know that the first one is wrong because they're the real deal. And also, from a perspective of their ends and their strategy, ISIS and al-Qaeda are very different. Now, it's worth noting that ISIS was an offshoot of al-Qaeda. They did start with al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was founded by Zakawi in 2004, along with a bunch of Sunni and Ba'athist people that had been shut out of the new order. But since then, they have split off and actually are quite antagonistic to each other and often get in fights, particularly in the Golan Heights. They are battling each other right now. Another important conventional public perception about the Islamic State and in, and in general about most fighters in Islamic extremist groups is that the IS is composed of a bunch of young men that are just alienated, disenfranchised, maybe sociopaths that have a violent streak and need to take it out on someone, right? These are just some youths without jobs, without anything better to do. They're angry about it. And what we need is some jobs and some roads and everything will be great. In particular, The reason we believe this is that violence in the West has dramatically declined over the past hundreds of years, and it's a pretty constant streak with only a few blips. And it is very correlated to wealth, employment, education, etc. And you you can read the angels of our better selves to understand how that worked in the West. Better Angels of Our Nature, I think, is the the book by Steve Pinker. There we go. Great. Yeah. And you can read The Better Angels of Our Nature 
by Steve Pinker to understand more about how this worked in the West. But it's actually a very different story with jihadism or Islamic terrorism. So no doubt there are some crazy people, sociopaths, just violent folks that join ISIS and they do fit this archetype. But it's clear that most people that we call Islamic terrorists, in particular the leadership, are actually quite well educated. So for example, the self-proclaimed caliph al-Baghdadi has a doctorate in Islamic theology. Many members of both ISIS and al-Qaeda are overwhelmingly college-educated. Osama bin Laden was way more educated than either Xander or myself. And so if they're not these just dumb, disenfranchised punk kids, that changes our calculus a lot. Because if we're responding to them as if they are, we're going to screw up. So what we need to do is we need to try to understand the internal logic that drives these people, however crazy it may appear to us. We need to understand what about the messaging and the nature of ISIS and other Islamic extremist groups, but particularly ISIS as it is different from those. We need to understand what is attractive to people who are educated and otherwise could be these very reasonable members of society. If we don't understand that, we will just be straight up unable to beat them. So what is the overarching goal of the Islamic State specifically? Well, I mentioned it a little bit before, and it's to establish a caliphate, this religiously based empire that would stretch throughout the Middle East that has stretched in history quite wide from the Arabian Peninsula over to the former Persian Empire. And North Africa. And North Africa. All along the Mediterranean, what once was a big part of the Roman Empire became the Umayyad Caliphate, the, the Abbasid Caliphate. Now, notably, this is a regional goal. This is a state that founding members of IS want to establish in the Middle East. And this is distinct from al-Qaeda's goal, which was to attack the West, specifically the United States, in retaliation for their alliance with Saudi Arabia and presence in the Middle East. Al-Qaeda saw their mission as a pre-caliphate requirement, something that had to occur in order to pave the way for this caliphate's reemergence. And was it the case that that pre-requirement was ultimately about getting the West out of the Middle East, North Africa, and etc., in order to create the space for Muslim leadership to take over? Right. They wanted to expel the United States, and they saw that as basically a prerequisite. So this is why IS has committed relatively few attacks against the West, and this has changed somewhat over the course of the last year with the San Bernardino attacks in Paris and Belgium. Now, those were all a little bit different, and some of those were perpetrated by individuals that no one could draw a direct tie to actual IS organization in Syria and Raqqa, like the San Bernardino attacks, like the Paris attacks. But then the Belgium attacks looks like it might have actually been coordinated directly with um, IS in Syria. But ultimately, these three attacks pale in comparison to what IS is carrying out in Turkey and different areas in North Africa and Iraq and Syria. I mean, there's a lot of terrorist attacks that are killing a lot more people in the Middle East and North Africa that just aren't getting covered. And this is not to say that attacks against the West won't increase, but it explains somewhat why before Belgium, before Paris, there have been very minimal attacks against the West. It's because their primary goal is to establish a caliphate, and that is a regional goal. And I think in particular, when we're talking about ISIS attacks, you know, Al-Qaeda, for example, didn't try to establish regional control. Now, they were harbored by the Taliban, which did try to establish regional control. ISIS, most of their attacks are conventional, right? They use troops in fairly sophisticated formations. They use tanks. They use artillery. And what they do is they try to take over territory. They invade Right, They roll into Palmyra. They tried to take Kobani. 
their attacks in Iraq were largely speaking not terrorist attacks against civilians. And they do this, and there's a reason. They do those terrorist attacks. But most of what they do is highly conventional. So if they weren't Muslim, we would probably more quickly think of them as a rebel insurgent group that is trying to take over territory, which is largely speaking what they are. And this is part of the danger with using a word that's so all-encompassing as terrorism, because there are all these nuances that describe individual groups within that umbrella that if you just lump it into this catch-all, you're not actually capturing the detail you need to formulate coherent, effective strategies and policies. So one strategy that you see time and time again in IS language and propaganda is this concept of bogging down the Islamic State's enemies. There's this book released by, it was actually an Al-Qaeda franchise in 2004, and this is before the Islamic State was founded, but it remains really highly influential within like on-the-ground fighters in IS, and it was called The Management of Savagery. The author, uh, some guy named Abu Bakr Naji, argues that jihadists should learn from, quote, the writings and examples of non-Muslim insurgents, military strategists, and political theorists. And one of the very first people that this author, uh, Bakr Naji, quoted was not the uh, Prophet Muhammad, but this guy named Paul Kennedy, who is an American historian who wrote about the dangers of military overreach. And this excerpt from Paul Kennedy is included in this book, The Management of Savagery, and it reads, quote, If America expands the use of its military power and strategically extends more than necessary, this will lead to its downfall. Naji uses this quote as essentially the bedrock of his entire strategy for provoking the United States into overextending itself militarily. And Naji argues that there are universal laws of insurgency that are usually compatible with Sharia laws. So there's a second core strategy. ISIS ultimately needs to have an army of sufficient size and power to be able to conquer and then control a vast region. It considers the caliphate that it wants to create to be as far-reaching as into India, but through Iran and Pakistan, as far west as Morocco, down to Sudan, and up through Spain, and into the Balkans. All of this territory was, at different times, controlled by different Muslim imperial groups, some of which were the caliphate, some of which were not. Notably, Iran, which has always been independent from the caliphate, is targeted by Islamic State strategy. To be able to control such a vast empire, something that is far bigger than the Roman Empire, they're going to need a whole lot of people who are very devoted. And so a big part of their strategy is driving recruitment. I mean, frankly, it's like recruitment marketing. I mean, if you sit in the subway and you look at ads, there are various companies trying to get you to apply to join. These guys are doing the same thing. And they're looking for some very zealous people that are willing to die in glorious ways for the caliphate. One of the ways that they do this is by trying to fulfill prophecies about the caliphate. And the reason for this is because when it seems like the new caliphate is coming, and when it seems like the end days are coming, and that this is an inevitable tide of history you're going to want to join the winning side. You don't want to be on the wrong end of God when the rapture comes, whether you are a Christian or a Muslim. And so a lot of what they are doing is trying to instigate these signs of the apocalypse and claim that they are inevitable in order to recruit people who might otherwise be on the fence to join them and become fighters. So many Islamic theologians whether they are part of a more intense Wahhabism or whether they are moderates, acknowledge and understand that in the Quran, there are a handful of requirements to establish a caliphate according to Sharia law. Among these are one, control of territory 
and two, enforcement of Sharia law. And so ISIS is one of the first organizations to do this in any serious way in any significant swath of territory for a very long time. Many consider ISIS to be the first real caliphate established in a thousand years because the Ottoman Empire, which claimed to have a caliph as the sultan, did not enforce Sharia law. So in some ways, you might argue that it wasn't a caliphate and wasn't led by a caliph. So this is a pretty big deal. Now, according to Quranic law, if no caliphate is established, Muslims do not have an obligation to implement Sharia as scattered bands of brigands, right? Because it would, in large part, because it would be at best useless and at worst counterproductive. But if there is a caliphate established, they must declare loyalty and support the implementation of Sharia or die a death of disbelief, which essentially means not having your soul saved. So think about the strength of these religious arguments that are in Islamic texts dating back thousands of years. This is why you get educated Muslims from around the world with perfectly good jobs as engineers or doctors traveling to Syria to fight with the Islamic State. This isn't disenfranchised, bloodthirsty, alienated young men. This is highly religiously educated people who understand the rules of Islam, and they're starting to see some of the signs of the caliphate come about. So how can the Islamic State more effectively recruit from foreign countries to fill its ranks? Ultimately, this is about making it look like more of these Quranic prophecies are being fulfilled. And one of the most important ones, one of the most visible and illustrative ones, goes like this. It says that the caliphate will fight the Romans on the plains of Dabiq. And Dabiq is this town and plains in the northwest of Syria that is currently under contention between the Islamic State and Syrian opposition and Kurdish groups. So what they want to do is they want to bring Western troops to come and invade in what seems like a new crusade. And they want to frame it as a new crusade of Christian groups, Roman groups, coming to fight them. And when this happens, it's going to look like another prophecy of the Quran has been fulfilled, that the caliphate is coming, that the apocalypse is coming. And this prophecy is so important, it's so core to the apocalyptic narrative of the Islamic State, that the magazine that they publish, which is in English, it's distributed online to anyone in the world. I mean, it's also in Arabic, but it's in English. It's translated to English, distributed amongst the world, and largely targeted towards young people, is called Dabiq, which are the planes of this apocalyptic battle. Yeah, there's um, a guy named Graham Wood who wrote a pretty long and extraordinarily informative article for The Atlantic a little while ago. Oh, but it's good. If you haven't read it, you need to. We'll post a link up. We're going to be including sources for... We're going to be including links for all of the sources that we use to put these shows together, both on our blog and in the description for the iTunes episode if you're getting the podcast from there. And we'll put this link up there to this Atlantic article. And there's a great line that's very relevant to what Eric was just talking about, this propaganda value of Dabiq. And um, it goes like this, quote, the biggest proponent of an American invasion is the Islamic State itself. The provocative videos in which a black hooded executioner addresses President Obama by name are clearly made to draw America into the fight. An invasion would be a huge propaganda victory for jihadists world, worldwide, irrespective of whether they have given Baya'ah, which is this pledge of allegiance, to the caliph. They all believe that the United States wants to embark on a modern-day crusade and kill Muslims. Yet another invasion and occupation would confirm that suspicion and bolster recruitment. Add the incompetence of our previous efforts as occupiers, and we have reason for reluctance. 
The rise of ISIS, after all, happened only because our previous occupation created the space for al-Zarqawi and his followers. Who knows the consequences of another botched job? And so when we look at some of ISIS's more, I mean, almost comically, like comic book evil actions, in which they are specifically finding Westerners and taking videos of beheading them and brutalizing them, torturing them and desecrating their bodies. You think these guys are just psychopaths and evil. And that is true. But they're also very smart. And specifically what they are trying to do is make us so angry, so disgusted with them that we cannot help ourselves but invade them in order to destroy them, to keep them from doing this ever again. And that replenishes their ranks and lets them keep fighting for longer. Yeah, exactly. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So why does this strategy matter? Why does understanding what ISIS wants to do, why is that important? Well, because this... As I mentioned a little while ago, this idea of, an, of this umbrella category of terrorism or Islamic extremism usually gets used in such a way that it obscures all the nuances between the individual groups that fall in that category. So if you look at the Islamic State versus al-Qaeda, they both had distinct strategies. One was to reject the U.S. and, and one is to expand this caliphate. And then they use different tactics to achieve these strategies. And since we are currently more focused on the Islamic State – because al-Qaeda has been so weakened over the course of our wars in the Middle East, we need to understand what their strategies and tactics are. So whereas al-Qaeda thought that attacking fellow Sunni Islam, uh, Muslims, which is one sect of Islam, would hurt their cause and ruin their ability to form consensus, the Islamic State, on the other hand, has believed from day one that strict Sharia law needs to be enforced on everyone living within their caliphate, even Sunnis. So while al-Qaeda might have been generally okay bending the rules a little bit when it came to enforcing Sharia law so long as it encouraged positive public opinion among fellow Sunni, uh, among Sunni Muslims, they, they were essentially willing to do this if it engendered some sort of long-term strategic benefit that helped them further their cause, which was paving the way for a caliphate. And this is not the case with the Islamic State. And it's one of the reasons why we've seen so many insanely violent punishments occurring in territories where they have control in Syria, especially against fellow Muslims, and why al-Qaeda members have even come out, high-ranking al-Qaeda members, people who sat second in command to Osama bin Laden, denouncing some of these actions. So we see a difference between al-Qaeda's strategy of winning hearts and minds and the Islamic State strategy of having the theological moral high ground and claiming the mantle of the caliphate, which cannot be claimed unless it is consistently enforcing Sharia law, even if it, to put this so lightly, it hurts to say it, even if it ruffles a lot of feathers along the way. Al-Qaeda would even warn some of its franchises, its Iraq, its uh, Iraqi franchise, for example, to avoid declaring a state. Don't do it. Don't do what ISIS is doing until you have the support of the Sunni masses. Even bin Laden's strategy to drive Americans from the Middle East explicitly called for this degree of popular support, which ISIS seems to be saying whatever. 
bin Laden was concerned that establishing or declaring an Islamic state before it was really ready to start fulfilling these governing obligations would disenfranchise Sunni uh, Muslims and would create a lack of popular support needed to make successful. William McCants, who is a Brookings Institute fellow, wrote a book called The ISIS Apocalypse, and in it he he writes that bin Laden feared that, quote, Arab states have made people dependent on them for everything, and any Islamic state that does not deliver public goods efficiently would quickly lose that support. The public is only interested in the results, and it often ignores the details and conditions which led to one's success or failure. On the other hand, this guy Zarqawi, who led al-Qaeda in Iraq and later broke off to become the Islamic State, was concerned that bin Laden was too obsessed with attacking Americans uh, in order to gain popularity and was relegating the establishment of the Islamic State to a secondary importance so that he was subordinating the main goal of creating the caliphate to an obsessive attack on the West as revenge. So the later embodiment of the Islamic State, the one we see today headed by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, that this was because al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and al-Shabaab, who's a lot like al-Qaeda, had not been brutal enough in enforcing the hudud, or Sharia law's punishments. And so at this point, al-Qaeda and the Islamic State have entirely split apart. And ISIS's leader, al-Baghdadi, has publicly broken from the al-Qaeda chain of command. They're even attacking each other, as we mentioned before. Right. So I'm just going to grab another quote from this book, The ISIS Apocalypse, because this is just so relevant here. Uh, And and the author, McCants, puts it this way. He says, quote, Thus, the Islamic State's disagreement with al-Qaeda's leadership is inscriptural. It's strategic. The Islamic State does not believe... A hearts and mind strategy is effective, and for the past few years, it has been proven right. This is not Bin Laden's insurgency. Right. And if we think of the terrorism that ISIS is conducting, particularly outside of Iraq specifically, we have to note that it's only turned to this recently. Until recently, it's just been conventional and unconventional warfare, and the kind of intimidation and thuggery associated with militias trying to suppress collusion with government powers, right? So if they're going out and thumping heads, you know, cutting off people's arms, killing families, it's in order to keep the population in fear and therefore in line, following Sharia law and making sure that even with dragging feet, they are supporting the Islamic State rather than acting as informants for the Iraqi and Syrian governments. Now, we've seen this change and pivot towards attacking the West with limited frequency, but with a growing frequency. I mean, certainly up from zero. And so we have to think about why, despite comparatively vast resources and manpower, especially compared to groups like al-Qaeda, They have not focused on conventional foreign overseas terrorism and why they're pivoting to that now. One reason that at least seems to fit square peg, square hole is getting those Roman troops onto the plains of Dabiq, fulfilling that prophecy, tying down American forces in the Middle East again in a way that time after time has proven effective from what the U.S. has been doing over the last 15 years to the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, the broader Middle East seems to have been putting quite a strain on us as well. Right. So instead of bin Laden's ultimate goal of breaking the United States to exit the Middle East, what they want to do is bring troops to the ground right by the Islamic State and fight the Islamic State to take that next step. So ultimately, these attacks are poking the bear. They're trying to incite a retaliation um, in order to take the next step in this prophecy. And so ultimately, we're not dealing with a group trying to cow us to leave the Middle East or stop supporting Israeli policy or stop supporting Saudi Arabia or any of that. So what this implies is that feats of courage, retaliations, won't actually help 
they will hurt. And specifically, the way that we in the West frame terrorism makes the entire conversation about whether we are or are not afraid of the terrorists or letting them win. So everyone has to signal that they're standing up for America by doing some degree of tough talk. In order to show that we're not afraid of these terrorists, we can't do nothing, says the narrative. If we do nothing, we let them win. We let them cow us into doing what they want. But nothing is not the thing they want. Action is the thing that they want. And here's the thing. That narrative has some sort of degree of internal logic to it, right? You get hit, you want to hit back. We'll show them. We're, we're, we're not going to stand for this. We're going to defend ourselves. It's like two boxers squaring off in a, in a rink. One, you get hit, wants to hit the other boxer back, right? The, the problem comes, comes up when after you get hit, you go to hit back and no punch that you make can land with your opponent because they keep moving, they keep ducking, they keep getting out of your way. And this very natural human tendency to strike back to seek some sort of you know vengeance for your own citizens who have been killed both emotionally and presumably you know for security reasons that's a hard position that's a hard perspective to shake it makes it particularly hard to move sort of this public opinion from an approach of you know tough guy strike back to a surgical one Right, we we need to be very careful about how we deploy forces. Sure, we just got hit, but we can't just go bomb the hell out of them because there are these these specific weak points that we need to apply pressure. It doesn't give as much political fodder for people who need to get up onto a podium and try to curry public favor. It's a form of political suicide. I mean, even Bernie Sanders has been sort of tough guy when it comes to ISIS specifically. Yeah, and so if the, hey, let's just go crack them strategy is not the one that's going to work, then what is? And the way that we, we don't want to give you the answer or what we think is the answer. What we want to do is provide some context to understand what are the options that we have and how do we think about each of these. And so from a realist international relations perspective, we can think of the Islamic State as an organism or a beast that needs resources to survive. And if we deny these resources, it will start to wither. And the four resources it ultimately needs are manpower, so there's people. Uh, it needs money and the stuff that one buys with money, because if it runs out of money, it will run out of steam. It needs information, so specifically what's going on around it, what troop movements are happening, because if it's caught on its heels, it's going to lose territory. And enthusiasm, right? It needs zealotry. And so if we bomb them or invade, that deals in a way with number one, right? Each time we hit them, we take out some people. We may also take out some information if we hit some of their command and control centers. So this isn't just a useless strategy. But the problem is, it could backfire. We can arm them with propaganda to recruit more. So one, if we invade, we start to fulfill one of the signs of the rising caliphate and the apocalypse, one of these prophecies. But we also arm them with propaganda to recruit more, right? So part of their narrative is that this is a holy war that the West, in particular the United States, wants to wage a crusade to kill Muslims. And so the problem is that the Islamic State is very clever. They build their bases and facilities as close to civilian populations as possible. And the reason they do this is, one, to make us hesitate in destroying them, but in two, when we do attack them, there's a decent chance that we're going to kill civilians. And so you're going to have these videos of dead children, of crying mothers, of severely wounded people that they're going to use, again, not to win hearts and minds and show them that they are providing, but instead to show and reinforce this narrative 
that the West is out to destroy Muslims. And part of the problem is that within Islamic State territory, there's such a strong control on information that it's very hard to get alternative perspectives on this. And the Islamic State is brilliant at propaganda. And so they're constantly putting out these videos to the areas that they want to recruit from. And so what happens is, I mean, if we think about our own Facebook feeds during elections, our blood boils as we see that everyone but the candidate we like most is just evil, evil, evil doing all this awful stuff. And nobody's died. And so what happens when your Facebook feed is full of all these examples of the West murdering civilians, right? So these guys have this very powerful propaganda arm, even if we're 99% accurate, because we hit them enough that some civilians are going to die. And so this is very dangerous. And if we mix that with chest pounding, if we mix that with a lot of messaging about how we're going to go after them, or in particular, about how all Muslims are part of the problem, this only enhances their power. So Al-Shabaab recently put out a video, a recruitment video, that included comments from Donald Trump. Trump has said stuff about killing the families of ISIS members in order to deter the recruitment. But of course, this only helps. The more we try to make this about a fight between the West and Islam, as opposed to between good people and bad people, the more we give them power. And this is actually a place I think that President Obama has been very strategic and perhaps even clever for all of the criticism that he has gotten for conspicuously avoiding the word Muslim and for even saying something that sounded a lot like the Islamic State is not Islamic it has been potentially very smart. He has been thinking about this. And it sounds so absurd that if you're sitting there thinking, Ugh, this guy, how could he not mention that they're Islamic? It's not that he doesn't know. Right. And it's not that he's just trying to be nice. You have to think that, hmm, maybe there's a reason behind what he's doing. And this is one of the ways that you could deduce the strategy on your own without having to listen to reconsider. If a smart guy is doing something consistently odd and different from what your intuition says, we need to update ourselves with new information and think about what they might be doing. It's a good point because sometimes people who are responsible for putting together these larger strategies, those strategies might involve things that are counterintuitive, like calling the Islamic State not Islamic because you don't want to draw that distinction that the Islamic State is trying to establish. Yeah, and ultimately, even from a purely academic perspective, if you're sitting there going, yeah, but they are Islamic, a word of caution. For religions that have a billion people and have millennia of history behind them, there have been many, many branchings off. There are many people who identify as Christian or Muslim or even Jewish or Buddhist or Hindu that consider others to be heretical or heterodox. To say that something is quintessentially of a religion, that it is or is not in any absolute or ultimate way, Muslim or not, is folly. You can read huge academic papers that will tell you how much the Hudud or Sharia law or the people who oppose it, the you know many Muslims who support it, many Muslims who oppose it. It can show you how these are related to the evolution of Islam and to many of the writings by people who are Islamic and relate it to the many writings of scholars in all of these religions, Islam, Christianity, Judaism that have made arguments that something is or is not of that religion. But for any one of us, even if we are part of that religion, to say that something is quintessentially of that religion is just silly. And so I want us to take a step back, even from the need, for, even out of a need 
to be accurate from saying, yeah, but they are Islamic because even academically that doesn't totally make sense on its own. And as much as I want to resist saying this is the way that we beat the Islamic State, I think that one of the most important mistakes that we make besides wanting to invade and kick back is by saying we have to show that this is Islam, we have to show that this is a problem. Not only is it counterproductive, but it is also academically inaccurate. And therefore, I think there's really no justification for doing it. Yeah, and I, I want to come back to this point you made about just going in and, and bombing them and, you know, they're, they're, they're bad guys. Why shouldn't we just go go bomb them? Why, why not just kill them right now, right? I mean, it's it's a position taken pretty frequently by American politicians and leaders. And this comes back to the, you know, boxer analogy that I use. You get hit, you want to strike back, but what if you can't land your punch? And one strategy that has, you know, actually been su suggested by security experts is, well, one, avoiding that direct over-involvement because in some ways it is giving the enemy what they want and actually persisting with this kind of muddling through strategy that we've been seeing that a lot of people in the U.S. have been opposed to, just kind of keeping pressure on Islamic State's borders, death by a thousand cuts, let them bleed out instead of just a decapitation. Because if this is in part an ideological battle, one way to show the the emptiness, the, sh the, the errancy of the Islamic State ideology is to let their governing structures start failing. Let the fighters who have come to al-Raqqa in Syria see the Islamic State failing, their institutions not being able to provide for their so-called citizens, and that this will be a more effective way to defeat them than by going in, bombing, killing a bunch of people, and providing them with a thousand new recruits. So to some extent, it might be useful to sort of get past this very natural inclination to think about what's right. We need to strike back now and instead be coldly self-calculating and selfish. We want ISIS to go away more than we want to, quote, do justice by killing all the bad guys right now immediately because they hit us. If our goal is to beat them, we need to think about what strategy actually affects that defeat rather than just what makes us feel good. Right. The last strategy that I want to talk about that is somewhat popular is a strategy that is common in the West, in particular with violent elements in the West. And it is growing in popularity, and it started with prison reform, I mean, even the 1920s. Violent people in the West, our assumption about them is frequently that they are socially shut out, that they're malcontents because they don't have education, they don't have a job, they don't have an opportunity. And because they're closed off from society, they largely have no choice because they haven't had a good upbringing or because they feel so alienated, they become disturbed and lash out. And so our response to this is frequently saying, let's give them jobs, let's give them education, let's include them in society and give them an opportunity. And so sometimes this translates over to the Middle East. And we've done this in some of our, in some of our quote unquote state building efforts in Afghan and, Afghanistan and Iraq, where we say, let's build an economy, let's build new education, let's build roads, all this stuff. And what this will do was this will disarm the recruiting capacity of ISIS. So we go back to that first need, those people. And I think that it's important to note from earlier the nature of Islamic State fighters. Largely speaking, educated, they have opportunities elsewhere, and they're leaving these opportunities behind to come fight. So I think that the other common strategy of essentially be nice, give them education, give them jobs, also misses the key point because it's not opposing the real driver, the root cause behind people that want to join ISIS. So if we take a step back and remind ourselves of those four needs, which are people, money, information, and enthusiasm, we, when we are building a strategy, 
we need to build one that is able to deny and degrade each of these. It is likely that this strategy will be complex, it will be long, and it will require patience, which is not something the United States is particularly good at in its foreign policy. But I think in understanding the roots of what give the Islamic State, in particular, its enthusiasm and its recruitment, because I think money and information are a little more straightforward, but in understanding what drives number one and four, debunking some of the myths about what drives one and four and how to decrease numbers one and four, we can come up with a much better strategy as a public and therefore as a government. So that's where we'll leave you off. The Islamic State is, of course, an awful place full of awful people. We think that it absolutely does need to be destroyed rather than dealt with. We want the United States and the West to take the most selfish and efficient strategy possible. We just happen to think that the conventional strategies, the most popular ones, are neither the most selfish nor the most efficient and effective ones. And so hopefully by providing you this context about who the Islamic State is, who joins it, what their goals are, what their strategies are, and what their needs are, we can help you to reconsider your position on the Islamic State what we should be doing going forward. And hopefully if you've had an opportunity to learn some stuff here and change your perspective, that you will be sharing this with your friends, that you become an influencer, and that even you might write your congressperson. Because we think that this is not just an interesting academic thing. This is an important issue that the West needs to deal with. And we hope that this podcast inspires you to do something about it. So with that, thank you guys for listening to our first meaty episode on ISIS. We'll see you in a couple weeks. And remember always, don't let the pundits think for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. And this is Xander signing off. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.